Hello and welcome to the edition podcast. Once again, we've got a bit of a special show for you this week because as you may have seen, a certain Ben Smith has a book out and he's going to join me to talk about it today. How are you, Ben? I'm good. Thanks so, thanks so much for having me. No, I'm I'm really pleased to have you on. I had you on, on my old show, so it's good to be talking again. The book is called Traffic, so that's coming out. It should be out by the time people listen to this. May 2nd, it's coming out. Uh, but I couldn't have you on without starting at the current media furore and the big breaking news in US cable news, which is that within minutes of each other, we learned that first Tucker Carlson at Fox News and then Don Lemon at CNN had lost their jobs. It's been a kind of crazy few days since then, hasn't it? What what can insight can you shed of what's gone on in the two cases? Sure. I mean, I would say in the biggest picture, it's a sense, you know, it's sort of all part of the same story of, you know, of an era defined by Trump and social media and kind of commercial demand for hyper-partisanship ending. Um and and you know I don't know what it'll be replaced by, but you know not that. And Tucker Carlson, Don Lemon were sort of huge faces of the sort of 2010s in a way. Um, more specifically, though, like Carlson, I mean they, they're not parallel; they're not no. particularly similar. And Carlson is a very significant figure in U.S. politics. I mean, he really was you know emerged as a leader of this right wing populist movement, pushing pulling the party to you know, away from its sort of traditional kind of um, pro-business, hawkish foreign policy and towards something much more like European right-wing populism. And he, he had this huge platform on Fox, and it's a really meaningful thing that's being taken away from him. There are a lot of members of Congress, for instance, who li- who introduced legislation to please him, who lived in fear of him. And I think a lot of them are probably relieved that he's gone. He had a lot of power. He, yeah, he clearly did. And I, I, there's no real equivalent for me here in the UK just because of how our newspaper and television news is governed. It just, there's no real figure that's very similar to me. I think I'm grateful for you being on to try and explain that because for UK listeners, there really is no equivalent of this person that drew, drew in millions of people a, a night. And as you say, with one monologue, could really shift the political direction of one of the two major parties in the country. And yeah, that's right. And he also obviously had access to Donald Trump whilst he was the president. You know, stories of him turning up at Mar-a-Lago to try and sort things out. There was all sorts going on, wasn't there? Yeah, he was absolutely, and is a political force in his own right, but he had this audience that Fox delivered to him of, you know, three-ish million people every night. And it's not really a portable audience, because That's it is a very old audience. It's it is an audience who watch cable television on their televisions, who maybe who you know use a remote to navigate channels, or who sometimes you can speak to the remote and say which channel you want. But it's not people who are going to download your app and follow you to a new streaming platform that you just invented. Yeah, that's really interesting because before I spoke to you, I was just watching Tucker Carlson's video that he'd put out on t- Twitter and wherever else. It was a rather bizarre kind of monologue, which I couldn't really unpick. I didn't quite know what he was talking about. And he doesn't mention leaving Fox News once in the kind of two minutes he was on the video. It was quite bizarre. 
And what's the difference with him and Don Lemon from CNN, Breakfast Host? You know, he's one of a triumvirate of Breakfast Hosts. Actually, it's a show I could watch here in the UK because we have CNN on some of our TV. So I was kind of more familiar with Don Lemon in some ways. And he, to me, seemed like a rather conventional, you know, good-looking, eloquent Breakfast Host. What's gone on there? Um, You know, it was... There was basically a new regime swept in at CNN after they were acquired by a company called Warner Brothers, what's now called Warner Brothers Discovery. And and they, I think, are very intent on purging this partisan, highly rated spirit of the previous regime led by Jeff Zucker and turning it into a – and it's not totally clear yet what they're turning it into, but something more centrist, I guess, particularly. And Lemon, who I don't think is really personally – anything in particular other than a very gifted television host had really performed the role that the previous management wanted and the new management really didn't like it. And then he occasionally says very stupid stuff in particular about uh, the, about women in their forties being past their prime or something. Yeah, He it was, was quite rude about Nikki Haley. his co-hosts among other people. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it all, you know, I, I don't, you know, and I, I was, I interviewed the president of CNN the other day and asked him, when Don was in the room and I asked the president of CNN, Chris Licht, why so many of the headlines about CNN were about Don Lemon. And I do think that was ultimately a big part of the problem. So hang on. We're, is this an exclusive for the edition? Ben Smith brought down Don Lemon. His no, interview. no, no. <laughs> it, just, it just was a very, very obvious, open mess. Yeah. Uh, that incident you referred to where he called women past their prime, he's talking about Nikki Haley, who's thrown her hat in the ring to become the next US president, hasn't she? And as you say, he's flanked, he was flanked every morning, Don Lemon, by two uh, female co-hosts. And yeah, they were not happy with that comment, were they? And there's been some other incidents as well, as I understand yeah. it. Uh, it's all fascinating and it's great to have this because have you on to discuss this? Because of course, not only did you write the New York Times media column for a long time, which I loved, uh, you now have turned your attention at Editor-in-Chief at Semaphore, which uh, is, I, again, I love reading the stuff there. I love your Semaphore media newsletter with Max Tanney, which comes out every Sunday night for me. It's kind of Sunday afternoon for you, isn't it? Uh, which kind of gives all these scoops between you and Max and your perspective, which is great. Explain to listeners who don't know what Semaphore is all about. How long, You've been going a little bit now, so it's kind of taking shape a bit more, I feel, as a reader. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, you know, we've been around about six months. We're we're a new global news organization, um, you know, with with big ambitions and a fairly focused start. But I think our our core goal is to kind of solve the challenge, the the problems that readers have now at the end in this sort of cha- unbelievably chaotic, messy crash landing of the social media age, where people feel really, really overwhelmed, and yet don't really know what to trust or often getting caught in these kind of partisan or parochial silos. And so, you know, we're trying to deliver news in a very transparent way with great journalists who really know what they're talking about, who can break news and who can also tell you what they think that means, but who know the difference between news and opinion and make that difference really clear and are open to other opinions and other points of view from around the world. And so that's, so that's, the way we're trying to to build it and it's has felt it's been pretty well received so far yeah you obviously you co-founded that with justin smith who was formerly at bloomberg he kind of leads the business side you're perceived as leading you're the editor-in-chief you lead the me uh the editorial side of that and you've hired great journalists here in the uk in the us and in other places around the world as well 
Yeah, we launched in the U.S. and in Sub-Saharan Africa. Those, yeah. those are the two. I but mean, then we have a we have big global ambitions, but are, don't want to don't want to bite off more than we can chew. Sure, I, there there are journalists based here as well, aren't there? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, we have a morning flagship email that. Um, yeah. You get the early rises in the UK. Yeah, to get your early rises in the UK, getting into that. And no, it's really interesting. And I guess I don't want to make you have deja vu for the conversations you were having six, seven months ago. But I guess I'm going to have to ask you to explain a little bit that format of the semaphore, which you pride, you know, you form everything around, which kind of yeah. breaks each thing into different sections, each part of the piece. And it essentially newsletter led as well, isn't it, semaphore? Yeah, well, yes, we're certainly newsletter. I'm saying newsletter first. Probably the, the easy these days that seems like for most people the best way to get news. Although we're we have a great website which you should check out. And yeah, I think the sort of expression of the way we're thinking about news is this thing called the semaphore, which is to say a story where that makes very very clear in a really explicit sectioned way. Here are the facts. Here's the reporter's point of view, and then here are some dissenting points of view. Um, if you know if 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 it may, if, if there are some. Um, which I think is really an answer to the way in which I think actually in the traditional news article, among other things, readers are left kind of unsure, you know, what, what are, there's a set of assertions, some of them are factual, some are analytical, some are kind of the party line of whatever organization you're reading, they're all mixed up together. And I think it's a moment when people connect much more easily with individuals than with institutions. And it is just more transparent and true to say, a specific journalist who really knows what she's talking about gathered these facts and she has thoughts about them. And actually like her analysis is only going to be interesting if it's not obviously true and in fact could be wrong. And so here's somebody who disagrees. And I think that's a way of sort of treating, treating a reader with respect. And then the other thing we try really hard to do is just, there's this thing that I find myself doing where you read a news article and you find a, you know, a publication you like and trust and think, huh, this is probably true, but let me go Google the subject and read six more articles to kind of triangulate what really happened, um, which is a crazy kind of a thing to have to do. And so we, um, you know, we try to do that for you. We try to include relevant stories from other pers- other places and other perspectives in our own in our own content. Yeah, I slightly challenge you in that a well-written kind of traditional in inverted commas story can often do that. You can kind of see. You know, it, it can descend into a little bit of what a battery he said, she says, and you don't really get any closer to the, the truth. But there's also an element in traditional news stories that incorporate all the things you've described in the semaphore. You know, here's the facts. Here's a dissenting voice. Maybe here's another voice in support of the original facts. And the issue is a bit about... um the reporter's opinion, if that sneaks into a more traditional news story. But there are now with newsletters. Well, but it blogs. always does sneak in. I would say <laughs> we can't help ourselves. Is, is, of course, it always sneaks in. And there are very standard ways of smuggling it in. Mostly you call up someone you agree with and quote them as an expert. But I think I think readers are most have mostly kind of caught on to that, to, to, the, to the sort of slight sleight of hand in that and would rather you just played it straight. Uh, maybe I, I certainly find the way I do enjoy reading the semaphore stories and I find the way you present it interesting. Um, it will be interesting if other people try and kind of copy in a way and break things down. And this this leads us in some ways to your time at BuzzFeed and the book Traffic that's coming out, as I said, May the 2nd, because that's certainly the the. The extract I've read was about your time at BuzzFeed. Uh, you were the founder of BuzzFeed News, 
sadly being wound down no more can yeah. I ask you what your feelings were when you heard that news that there was going to be no more BuzzFeed news yeah I mean it's you know it wasn't a total shock but I was because I think it's you know they've really been struggling for a long time but I'm really sad about it I mean I, you know I think we did a lot of journalism I'm really proud of over many years and tried to you know at our best we're this you know we're very closely linked to this new social web and then as it shrank and changed I think really had trouble finding our place and never and never build a meaningful business around news which is you know what I I regret not focusing on more intensely when I was there not that I was necessarily particularly good at it it was uh uh, I read a really interesting recollection from one of your former colleagues who you employed quite a young inexperienced age to report on Russia uh, he recalled a story where you were all very excited because the dress had happened and it was a record day of traffic at BuzzFeed News and everyone was very excited in celebrating the dress and he was squirreled away in a corner uh, reporting on a major incident in Russia uh, and to yeah, me that Nemtsov's murder Right. Um, and to me, that story just summed up everything that I used to really enjoy about BuzzFeed News and always yeah, thought it was very I mean, good. It was, right. At its best, we were sort of the hub of internet culture and whatever crazy thing, the dress being maybe the most fun and craziest of all of them, this dress that appeared through this optical illusion to be different colors to different people. It was blown black. on the internet was arguing about. And we also had... Um, I actually thought it was white and gold. And the, But we also had world-class <laughs> reporters like Max, who you're referring to, covering huge stories. And I think our thesis was most people are interested in both. They want to know the silly stuff and they are interested in news. And our thesis, which I think was true at first was, and they like the way social media mixes those things together. I think, and this is really a lot of what I write about in this book, Traffic, um, which I'm just going to plug here. It's out out, <laughs> out May 2nd, um, you know, is um, is about that shift. I think the audience and the platforms suddenly you know, I think as politics got more toxic, basically, stopped enjoying that that mix. And I think BuzzFeed, it was hard for us to find our footing after that. When politics became more of a kind of team sport, particularly in America, this has happened. Everything was hyper-partisan. You're either on the good side or the bad side. Uh, that was a struggle, was it? Um, you know, yeah, just, just that... Yes, that, that it was very partisan, it was very divisive, that that the sort of Trump movement in particular sort of thrived on, you know, really bitter conflict and division, and as did parts of the left. And that so the social media that they inhabited became really toxic and lots of people didn't want to be there anymore. And another big story, we very different to the dress, uh, and yeah. this is the one you reflect on in the extract you released to The Atlantic was that infamous Steele dossier, yeah. which, because this is a family show, I won't repeat some of the things uh, you said that it alleged happened with Donald Trump, but it became very, you know, it sort of completely took hold, as you recount in that extract, it sort of took, without context in lots of cases, completely took hold online, on social media, with people sharing the bits that they most wanted to have out in the world. Uh, and you say that you you don't regret publishing that dossier but you regret the way you published it, which was the PDF document in full. You'd written 350 words with all the relevant caveats, but obviously once the PDF document was out in the world, uh, people could do it without those carefully lawyered caveats. And that's the bit you regret, yeah. you said. Yeah, and that's, I would say that's actually in some ways. I mean, I, I, I don't want to slice it too fine. I do think it was the right thing to publish it. Mm. And I realize that remains a kind of 
a fairly unpopular opinion. I think who that is, at the time we published it, people around Donald Trump hated it and thought we were trying to get him. I think as it became clear how thin it was, liberals came to think that publishing it had been good for Trump and sort of made some of the allegations, sort of discredited, maybe overly discredited allegations about Trump and Russia. Um, I don't know. I mean, I guess I don't really think it's journalists' job to make decisions based on that kind of consideration. Um, yeah, but... and you you said that in the extract that actually your main concern was about transparency, that you knew other news organisations had seen this document, some of which you thought maybe was credible, some of which you had concerns and caveats about. and But no one was actually saying what was in the document. At best, people were saying this document existed or just pretending, you know, it was a non, no one was talking about it. There was different stages, weren't there? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think you know, again, it, it was, this was a very specific case where yeah. this was a document that everybody in town had, that every journalist, not every, but many journalists, many policy people, intelligence people, politicians had, you know, very powerful leaders. The Democratic leader in the Senate, Harry Reid, had written a letter to the head of the FBI, a public letter saying, I know you have this secret document that says bad things about Donald Trump. You know, you must tell us more. And so it was sort of in the ether in a way that it was it was affecting what happened and you weren't and no one could tell you why this stuff was happening without referring to it so that was and then and so that's already a pretty weird situation and then cnn reports that it has been briefed to two presidents to president obama president elect trump have been told about it and that it says that donald trump was has been compromised by the russians and to me at that point the option are the options are holding up a document and saying I have this in my hand a you know a secret document with compromising information that I'm not going to share with you, which actually makes it sound worse. Or you say here's this document everybody's talking about. We have tried to stand it up and knock it down. Mostly people are not sure, but this is in fact this MacGuffin that is influencing policy. So yeah, and. And that kind of, again, spoke to the ethos of BuzzFeed, didn't it? That And actually your time at Politico as well, you referred to that actually you didn't want to treat people like idiots. People know when you write a story about Hillary Clinton, people know who Hillary Clinton is. You don't need to put former secretary of state or something, all that kind of thing. And it was all that was about transparency to your readers, wasn't it? And about what, you know, what was going on in Westminster, you know, when people go for a bar to a bar in Washington DC after a day's work and are gossiping about things that people outside Washington maybe don't know about but would find interesting what uh, people in New York newsrooms know are going on but can't get past the lawyers to to have in print and then you know are keeping amongst themselves but the public don't know that was that seems to be throughout your career actually what has driven a lot of the decisions and the stories you've done. Yeah, that's definitely the ethos that I, I sort of have coming from this wide open internet that just, there was this idea that, that grew up totally reasonably when there were two printing presses and five broadcast towers, two or three broadcast towers in town. That if you controlled those, you could decide what people saw and what they didn't see. And and if there was something you thought wasn't good for them to see and maybe rightly thought that, you would not show it to them. That had positives and negatives. But also that era is totally over, and people who think like that are missing the way information travels now. The dossier, by the way, was not exactly that, right? It wasn't already on the internet, so I don't want to totally no. conflate all these things. But but I would I do think it was it was the um, it was the same ethos. Yeah, well, that was the point, wasn't it? It was in certain people's hands, but not on the internet. That's right. 
Right. Uh, and how did that opinion, you know, approach that you've just laid out contrast with having a weekly New York Times column, kind of the traditional of the traditional media outlets, the column, the most traditional of traditional, you were taking the reins from the late, great David Carr, who was in many ways a maverick, but also in many ways a very traditional lover of the traditional newsroom. How how do those two approaches uh, contrast or complement each other? Um, my, my and David's? Well, your approach to writing a weekly column to this wide open internet that you dealt with. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was really interesting to sort of take everything I'd learned and go to the New York Times, the sort of dominant legacy player really in the world. Um, I mean, it was a blast, honestly. It's a great platform and great editing. And people, they were sort of, to my surprise, very open to my eagerness to make trouble. So, no, I, I, was, I had a good time there. But also, I think the Times, um, I think the Times, you know, absorbed a lot of the internet culture of the early aughts and the teens and the sort of like essentially the origins of this of digital media, which is what I've spent a lot of time thinking about. You know, the New York Times in the end absorbed a lot of it. People, which is to say, like ideas about journalism, but also people like me, like Kara Swisher, like Corey Sika, who's one of the sort of key Gawker writers. And then we were all there for a few years. And I think all mostly have dis- dis- have, have been rejected by the organism. Uh, well, Taylor Lorenz, of course, was also there for a few yep. years and then has gone obviously to the Washington Post. So, yeah, there are those yep. kind of people, but it's interesting. None of those people you named are, are still there. Yeah, it is, I think. <laughs> You'll leave it at that. Um, without making this sound too much like a retirement party, what kind of inspired you to go back and reflect on all this and write the book? You just launched a new news organisation writing a book, I know, takes a hell of a lot of time. What kind of made you think this is the time to do this book? Um, you know, it's when I when I got, I mean, I think when I was left BuzzFeed and was at the Times, you could just feel, particularly after I suppose Biden's election, this sense of the end of an era. You know, that this moment that had been grown up on, on, on a kind of progressive, youthful digital media that in some ways saw as its apogee and its goal, the election of Barack Obama, who then visited Facebook. And it sort of felt like, oh, the internet is this young, progressive place. And then turned and it turned out like, oh, no, actually, the real logical conclusion of all this is the election of Donald Trump, which is, you know, somewhat different. Mm-hmm. Um, and this kind of toxic social media of the late 2010s. You know, and then and it, it it just seemed to me that in the in media and in the sort of politics and culture and technology that circle around media that there was sort of a moment that was ending, and I and it's and, and I had been there, you know, not exactly from the start. You know how when you when you sort of join a get to a party or, or a scene, people say to you, "Oh man, like you just missed the really good part. Like you should have <laughs> been here last year." Yeah. Um. Like when things were really cool, and I had that very intense sensation both from having been a political journalist in New York who picked up Gawker's style of blogging and learned from them, but didn't wasn't really part of their social scene. And then came to BuzzFeed in 2012 and heard all the stories of the good old days of BuzzFeed, the early experimental years. It was sort of an opportunity for me to go and report all that stuff out that I was a little bit familiar with and figure out which which of the stories I'd heard were true, which were false, and kind of what, what was the, the origin story of this weird moment we're living in now. Um, what was your conclusion? What was that origin story? What were the kind of key players, key moments 
the key incidents that may that first gave us that kind of big bang of BuzzFeed, the fun, you know, the kind of listicle bit, and BuzzFeed News, which you built. And, you know, there was obviously there was HuffPost, which BuzzFeed now owns. There was Gawker, the original Gawker, as you say, all of that stuff. And then how did we end up where we end up? What's your kind of thesis of that on that? When you were reporting all this out, how what was your conclusion of how we got here from that that progressive time that you outlined to ending up with the kind of right wing online conspiracy theories? I mean, I mean, the big, the simplest answer is just that the internet seemed like it was youthful and progressive because those were the first people on the internet. You know, it wasn't the internet did not, not doesn't have inherent social political qualities. It's just a you know place people hang out, and as it you know grew just to swallow all of society, lots of older, more conservative people were on there, and. It was clearly, and I think this is not sort of a question for historians, not journalists, but clearly totally entangled with the right wing, the rise of the right wing populism that gave us Brexit and gave us Trump and gave us Duterte and gave us Bolsonaro and Modi. And I think it's only, only journalists are dumb enough to say that that's because of social media or that social media is because of them. I mean, the world is more complicated, but I do think that you know, it became totally, totally entwined with this new right-wing populism that wasn't, isn't where most people want to spend their days. You know, most regular people just don't want to spend their time thinking about politics. And it's a very unhealthy countries where people think and talk about politics all the time. And I think social media sort of became, you know, poisoned by those politics and, and consumer preferences changed. That's the other thing. I think, when we at BuzzFeed, we had this theory that social media was like cable. It was this new distribution form that you could make content for, and it would be like cable. It would be around for you know fifty, a hundred years. Who knows? Um, but actually, it was these social platforms seem like they're more like other social institutions, like a bar or a nightclub, where you go there for a while and then you all stop going there because your friends aren't there anymore, and it's not. Again, totally, it's a social phenomenon. It's not totally clear why everybody got sick of that bar. It's just people move on. And I, that seems to me what's happening most of all with places like Facebook and Twitter. Did you take any of the stuff, or will you take any of the stuff you learned in putting the finishing touches to this book on those experiences you're reporting on into how you build Semaphore? Oh, yeah, lots of them. I mean, ne positive and negative. Um you know, I think that the core thing that I did really deeply learn from Jonah Peretti, the founder of BuzzFeed, was just thinking about, okay, this is this moment of profound change. And it's not a, and the, and the questions around how do you get people to read stuff and what aren't like, aren't basic, they're not technical. It's not like, wow, can I game this algorithm and platform? They're really about, well, what do people want? Like, what's the problem we're trying to solve for people? People feel really overwhelmed. How can we do a good job of reading the whole internet for you and distilling it into something short and easy to consume and smart, you know, like, and, 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 you know, and that there's a huge asset to starting from scratch and thinking that stuff through. Um, you know, I obviously learned a lot of other lessons too, like to make sure you build a business along with your newsroom. Right. Uh, you mentioned Jonah Peretti, who obviously founded BuzzFeed. I, I read you stopped it. I think this is in the book. You stopped him selling BuzzFeed to Disney. You... I don't think I, I don't think I personally. <laughs> you're, not, you're not taking the full blame. Him, but no, but I mean, this was, I think we'll go down in history as one of the stupidest business decisions ever made. And 
in the media business, but Disney was tried to buy BuzzFeed for $600 million in 2014. And, you know, we felt like we were just getting started. Jonah and I did, and my colleague, Zay Frank, and that we were, had so much more to build and to do. And that Disney really wanted us because they thought we kind of sprinkled digital fairy dust on sort of older properties like ABC News. And I think in a sort of selfish, personal way, Jonah and I didn't feel like that's what we wanted to do. That wasn't what we'd signed up for. But we also, you know, all the arrows were going up and to the right. And we thought we could, you know, we thought we could keep growing. We thought we could, you know, be Disney. Uh, so you're not taking the full personal blame for talking him out of that deal? No, no, I think that's <laughs> where his heart was. <laughs> uh, well, it, it's been fascinating talking to you. I'm I'm kind of really, I've read the extract that was public. I'm really interested in reading the full book. What What was the biggest thing then to finish up that you learned or reflected on when writing the book? You've touched on different incidents and that kind of thing, but what was the one big takeaway? Um, you know, I mean, I think, I mean, for me, actually the biggest takeaway and the biggest surprise in the reporting was both to see like, oh, so much of where we are now was born in this kind of downtown Manhattan scene in the early 2000s. And also the thing that really did surprise me was how much these figures on the populist right, like Andrew Breitbart, were there. Like we're just physically part of that world and watching it and learning from it and going on to build things they'd learned in that moment as well. It's fascinating. It's going to be fascinating to read. It's going to be fascinating to see where you go with Semaphore. Uh, knowing about you, I'm assuming you have big fans for the future of Semaphore as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I you know, please, please sign up. Please buy the book, sign up for the newsletters, all those things. Well, very good, Hawking. Uh, Ben Smith, I'm so grateful for you taking some time to talk to me here on the edition. If people don't know, where on earth can they keep up with you? Twitter and the like. Oh, um, uh, you know, semaphore.com. Sign up. We're, and we're, you're at semaphore. I, I, don't, I, don't really, I don't really think Twitter is the place to go anymore, but I'm semaphore Ben over there. Long, long, may, it, long may it last. Long may it last. Yes. Well, we could have had a whole, could have done a whole separate show with you on uh, what on earth is going on with Twitter and the effects that's having on the media oh, landscape. Yeah, yeah. But I'll have to have you back another day for that. Well, I think it's all part of the same story. It's the end of an era. Yeah, I think you're probably right about that. Um, I'm at Charlotte A. Henry on Twitter. You can obviously sign up to the edition.substack.com. I hope you are. And if you're listening there, that's great. You can also listen to this podcast wherever you normally listen to your shows. Ben, thank you once again for joining me and I'll see you all next week. (laughs) 